Okay, hi, uh, welcome to another uh, podcast from the uh, Scottish Documentary Institute. Um, today's masterclass was filmed in February 2012. It's uh, filmmaker and artist Michel Windsor, a Swedish uh, sound designer and filmmaker. His uh, latest work um, that he talks about in the class is a film called At Night I Fly, which won the Swedish Film Award um, for Best Documentary and the Tempo Documentary Award for Best Swedish Doc. 2012, so it's both powerful and unconventional documentary. Um, his masterclass um, discusses all the difficulties and um, problems encountered uh, filming in a maximum security prison, as well as um, the importance of uh, the uh, soundscape and uh, sound design um, in the film and in filmmaking in general. I'll just launch uh, straight into the class after a trailer to give you a bit of an idea of the atmosphere and um, film itself. Right about loss, they said. Whose loss? Your loss? My loss? The loss of men fighting to cling to something more than insane screams? Reaching and reaching, daring to dream, even in a place where sadistic souls rip the wings off angels and then laugh at their demise. I scream no more loss, no more broken spirits, no more nights planning and plotting ways to endure one more needless loss. Loss of hope is ripping out my soul. The loss of compassion. Loss of what I want to be. The loss of me. So tell me, poet, whose loss should I write about today? Shall I write about the loss my victim's mother felt the day she found out she lost her son? Shall I write about the loss my mother felt the day she heard her son had killed? Shall I write about the loss my son feels over growing up without a dad? Or shall I write about the loss I felt as the cuffs bit into my tattooed skin? Shall I write about the loss of sleep for years because of the loss? Maybe I'd give a better read if I wrote about the years I thought my sanity would surely be my next loss and maybe my last loss. I know loss, and when I write about loss, I call it loss. That's the whole style of the movie, I think. It's very, uh, I turned down the volume on what I wanted to say. It was also a decision that uh, I think what I want to communicate is that the place uh, in itself, the system is horrible, I think so. I think the whole, the whole place is horrible. It's horrible that they have the, the sentence that you can sentence someone to life without the possibility of parole. That's uh, it's a death penalty, but it's slow death uh, during many, many, many years. So I don't think that's uh, okay. So, but I felt that maybe it's more, uh, it makes a stronger impact if you don't like, I don't have to say that, it's there, you, you can see it yourself. So that's how I like to, to see things or pick things up, you know. If someone points at it too much, then I, I, I sort of, get suspicious, so, yes? How did you prime the prisoners? Sorry? Um, how did you prime the prisoners before they actually spoke to you? I mean, what, how did you um, 
introduce them to the concept of, of your film? Oh, yes, uh, good question. I, I had help from Spoon because he was in the group, so he could uh, vouch for me, saying that I was okay. And then I, um, when I come, came into the prison the first time, it was very, I didn't know anything. I didn't know how many prisoners was going to be in the room. Uh, I, didn't, I just knew Spoon was going to be there, but not with whom. And uh, I didn't know if I was going to be allowed to film outside the room or just inside the room. So I knew very little, so I could do very little preparations. So, but I was introduced to a group um, of prisoners that was sort of a core of this room and this, this program, which is called Arts and Corrections. Then. So then I, I, I told them what I wanted to do and why I wanted <coughs> to do that and that I wanted to do something differently. And I was very nervous and I don't remember what I said exactly, but that's, I remember that, uh, that, uh, uh, that I, I tried to communicate that. I remember that. So, and they sort of uh, believed me. So that was the, like your question the other day, that how did I manage to get them to speak so freely? I don't, I don't feel that. They choose to, to speak to me and they choose to trust me. So that was maybe I did a good job, you know, introducing the project, but then it's, it was them taking a decision that they would talk to me. And I saw another documentary, because National Geographics had just been inside doing a, a one-hour documentary when, when, we, when we came in, like, I don't know, just four months before or something. So we got a rough cut or something, some first edit of that film, and it was like, it's so typical, and the guy spoke about that too, that the journalists, because there are journalists coming into this, even these maximum security prisons, but they come in with a prejudiced mind, and they, they have already their script, they was going to show that this is, their documentary was called Surviving Maximum Security. It was very spectacular. And so you come in with your questions, and you don't listen to people. You, you, can you tell us, is it very dangerous in here? How dangerous is it? So, and, and if someone says something that's off the path, no one listens. So that's how they feel about it. So I think they also felt that my, I came in with, with, uh, with curiosity also that I wanted to, I wanted to know how it is to be there. Uh, or I mean, I, I, I wanted them to talk about how it was and I didn't know. I can't imagine to be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I can't imagine having spent 30 years and sort of be prepared somehow to spend the rest of your life in there. So that was my, um, that was what I came in to know. So I think they, they also sensed that, that I was genuinely interested. Same as someone asked me at the Q&A after screen, why wasn't I in the film? I wouldn't feel comfortable to be in this film. It's not a film about me going into this prison. Like, I think some other filmmakers could have done that film, and they do. So, but I don't do that. <coughs> so, yes, it's it's ethics, I think. I mean, if it was, if I let's say that there was another situation that I, I hadn't met so many interesting characters or the characters, so to say, the people in there, maybe hadn't been so good at expressing themselves, then maybe the, the, the thing had called for something more, for 
from my part to, to sort of tell the story. But there, there was no need for that because everything was being said by, this, by the guys. So I, that's why I, I decided to go more the other way, for more traditional documentary. Yes, I, I tried very carefully to um, not to demonize, I mean, the guards and stuff, you know, and I think that first scene with the, with the woman there is very interesting in many ways, you know, and um, I needed a contrast of all these things, so that the cliché of prison and how that cliché is sort of uh, also being vouched for or something by the by the prison guards and everybody there and also the prisoners it's like a, the culture the ruling culture of the place is kept up by the prison authorities and the prisoners and it's like and that's actually what the film is about how to break that how to break out of that and the room is a key point the room and art gives them the necessary tools to sort of break free of those boundaries that the the culture of the place has placed upon them everybody even the guards I mean so um, so there's a point in having that in the beginning and then there's after that there's also a sequence from the surveillance camera with which is very violent someone gets shot in the picture and dies and uh, so there I mean there is things happening but I mean this guard sap who is his name and, and he talks he's, he likes to over dramatize everything so, but I had uh, I had to take away material with him where he where he did it he did it so much over the top and I thought fantastic he actually did that he started waving his baton you know around out there and uh, but in the end I had to um, take that down a little bit so that it wouldn't be but you pick up the irony anyway yeah because there is subtle subtle in one sense. I don't. I don't know if I can call it irony, but there's yeah, something. The is strong, but just some sense. Yes. Uh, an undercurrent that yes. allows us to read things two ways. Oh, good. Yeah. See, you're very smart. That was my ambition. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, that's good. That that that's my ambition. Yeah. Yeah. I can say. And I haven't really figured out exactly what you're going to sense. So I, I also tried to surprise myself. And that's how I do when I edit also that you sort of you, you try to put these scenes together and if there's something, a sense of what you're talking about, that's a hint for me that I'm that, that it's good. Somehow it's actually good because it's I'm not really sure what's happening, but something is happening and there's an undercurrent as you say. Sorry, yes. Say yes. Too much, also, though the guard, as you say, exaggerates, by the same token, we see visually that there is this spatial separation amongst yes. groups, mm -hmm. which I think again gives us the sense of yeah. Party, yeah. Yeah. Like the reality is there. Yes, it's there. But um, why is it there? <laughs> or I mean, it's sort of a self. Uh, in Swedish, it's something that's upholding itself. You can't, it's like a spell that's over the whole place. So, and I mean, it is like that. Once you come in, if you come into the prison, you, you have to adjust to that. Because you come out on this yard and you're, for example, white. Um, everybody's watching you. 
see, oh, there's a new guy, what's he going to do? So you can't go and sit down by yourself because that's like challenging the whole structure, the whole system. So you have to go up and sit with the Aryan Brotherhood guys, with the big swastikas, because they are the same race as you. So and that's also a statement. So you saw everybody sort of trapped in this system, and the system is what's actually the evil in my film, then, you could say. I had a problem doing this film because nothing is happening. So you don't have a movement forward in my film, which is very difficult, strikes you when you start to edit. It's like, start here, it ends here, so what's going to happen in between? And um, so then there's different ways of um, um, attacking that problem. And so one thing was that we wanted to make the, because the room is a central point in the film, so I want to make the room a character. So how can we do that? Since I'm very bad at planning my shots and all this, I don't have all these little close-ups of details and stuff that you asked about because I, I don't know how to do that really, so I don't, just don't think about it. And when I came back to the prison, I got four additional days of shooting after my initial 10. Then I, I had a list of said, take close-up, but so much other interesting things happened. This new character showed up and everything, so in the end I didn't take those shots that I needed to take. It's also such a limited time. So then you have sound to work with. So we talked about, for example, then try to make the room into a character in the film so it will sound differently. So you, you try to create a more pleasant or a less unpleasant soundscape in the room than outside. So you have one for the, for the yard, one for the cell blocks where Marty was interviewed, and one for the room. And then there's some shots from like the control tower that's on the outer fence. So there you have wind, but you don't really have wind inside the prison, sort of things like that. Little details that, um, that we worked with. And then I don't know, I think that this, these ideas that you have of this type of things, they influence how you do the film. So maybe in the end you don't really hear the difference, but that doesn't really matter because they were there, you were thinking about it, so in one sense. In the editing process, uh, you should have take a decision like very early. It's, or this is how I think about how I'm gonna do next film. And that's how I did this film after a while. The first years of editing, <laughs> Um, I had many people telling me lots of things, and then you lose yourself, you lose your vision of the film and everything. You know? So you, you shouldn't have too many people, you should choose one or two in a little group that you trust, and you, you talk to them, and then you choose if you, whether you're going to listen to their advice or not. And you learn how to communicate about around your work. But as soon as you start to ask too many people, you, you're going to lose your... I think that you, you're going to lose it. But it's two different ways of thinking about it because like I'm uh, mentoring some other project in um, film school in Stockholm and there it was always the issue of whether they are very focused on and some people are on whether it, it's going to be misunderstood or not. 
Is it clear, really, in this scene what it's all about? Do we know if it's his grandma or his his uh, sister, you know, his girlfriend's grandmother or other irrelevant things? I consider because uh, if you get too focused on that, on clarity, and did you understand? No, I have to do it again because he had some, you know, three friends came into the edit room and they didn't understand whether he's, you know, all that things sort of. Uh, uh, takes the focus away from what's really important, which is to find the pace of the film and the feeling and the, 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 the more important things, the other things. That people will misunderstand your stuff anyway, you know? Or, I mean, some will understand, some won't. So you shouldn't spend too much time trying to get everybody to understand exactly what's happening all the time. That was my point. And, uh, good people around you, it could be very crucial and essential, I think. And there's where with my, uh, about having, finding valuable people to work with, the guy I do sound design with, or the guy who does the sound, he totally understands, so we can sit. And there's one scene in the film where Rick plays the flute, and there's a seagull flying, but you don't see it, but you hear it. So we could be, be set for like, one and a half hour moving it one frame, and, it's, and you hardly hear it. <laughs> we'll still play, spend almost two hours moving it, and then two weeks later when we look through it, it's like, the seagull should be moved again. <laughs> still not, so we could really go into details like that, you know. So I find that uh, they can be really important. <coughs> and I think you pick it up, I think you do. I mean, that's uh, how you perceive something, if it's done, carefully and if you spend lots of time with the details maybe you're not aware uh, when, when you try to analyze why did I like this I'm not all the time but I can tell it's well crafted I think so uh, because it brings a feeling and also that it's made for real I mean someone put lots of effort into this work it's the same as any art piece you can feel it comes from long same as with these guys it was a long time of thinking before reading uh, writing that poem and so on, so and you can hear that also when they read it. So it comes on, comes out in a very sincere and uh, powerful way. So that's how you should also do with your filmmaking or your art that you do in general. I think. How do you survive economically? Oh yes. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Finally, <laughs> I drive trucks uh, and I, I work as a monteur, montage. What? Janitor, yes. Uh, no, no, not janitor. No, no uh, monteur. I put things together. I'm a locksmith from the beginning okay. and truck driver. So I still have works, uh, normal works. And I was lucky, so I, can, like, I have a place I can go when they, when they need people. And I put everything aside and I work for two months. And then I go um, work on my art. And that's how I think I'm, I'm going to keep on surviving. So now I'm, I'm, I'm even... Um, uh, I'm learning also, because I do some carpenting also, so I'm learning a little bit more. I'm upgrading my skills in carpeting so I can get more work, because the, the ideal is that I can choose more when to work. It has been very impractical that I have to go, as soon as I got a job for me, I have to go there, put everything on hold for two months, and then there's no more work there, so then I can work with my film. So. And then occasionally I get a commission work as composer for a film or edit a little bit so then of course I can then you get paid I mean when you hire into a project so that's good so um, 
but in general, I, I survive by doing my old type of you know, rework. Sorry? No, but I, I, what I do get when I have to, when I have to leave my studio and go working, is that I, uh, I have time to think about what I want to do. And also, I think it's more important, I get time to appreciate that I'm privileged enough to work with filmmaking and music making, at least part-time, because it is a privilege, I think. And, and it's very easy to forget. If you do it all the time, year out and year in, you forget. And it's nothing bad with that. It's perfectly normal, but it's not good. I don't think it's good. I think we should, we should wake up each morning and appreciate a little bit maybe our whole life situation that we live in. in in the Western world and, and so on, you know, we have quite an easy life. But, um, but also, if you are privileged enough to work with art, then I think some appreciation, uh, everybody as a person benefits from that, I think. So, uh, I get that. When I, my alarm clock rings five o'clock in the morning, and I'm like, oh, no, oh yes, now I'm, I'm driver, <laughs> not filmmaker today. So. I, for me, it's not that important what they are saying because there can be things said in the scene that they are actually not saying. So I'm more focused on that. And that was one of the problems with working with an editor that was so focused on what they were actually saying, saying, that, but they're speaking about violence. And he did that in the last scene, and it belongs to this part. I was like, can't think about my material like that because this scene, may, I don't care what they're talking about because I see something else, something going on between the characters or the way he walks after he said that or, and let me add some music to this and then you have, you have a totally different thing and I can't even verbalize what it is it's about. So it's something, so I like that and when I find things like that that I'm not really sure what it means but it's interesting, I want to keep them and, they, and then I use them to have them in certain places in the film. So I'm always looking for things where I'm uncertain of what is actually happening, what were they actually saying, and, uh, and I get very distracted when people are too focused on what they're actually saying, because I, don't, I don't, can't work like that. The people who does film, the people who writes about film, the people who commissioning films, uh, this is my opinion, but I think it's in general, in 80% of the cases it is true, they come from a white middle-class background, and they're interested in particular stories. And if there's other films coming out, it's like they are giving the epithet. How do you say epithet in English? Do you know what it is? Well, they, they, uh, you get a working class story or a female. Sorry? Empathy? No, not empathy. It's like a, they, it gets a label on the film if it's about uh, queer, if it's a queer film or a working class film or whatever, you know. But it never said it's, it's a white middle class film. That, then it gets the deeper analysis in the critics and so on and, and all that. But the other things that are not clearly the object that this class of people identify with, want to identify with, then it, it gets sort of slotted into something. It has to have a label on it. So that's a problem and I think that uh, one should try to be aware of these structures. Um, and uh, the more aware of it you are, the more you can sort of um, um, position yourself, whether you want to, I don't know what, what position you want to take, but 
to be unaware of them is kind of dangerous. That's my impression. You have to be able to defend your ideas and your film and to argue for what you're going to do. Also in the, in the process of making it, when people have suggestions of how to do it, uh, that character is not so interesting. Why do they say that? What, from which point of view are you talking when you say that? You know? So all this is work that you have to do and you have to study yourself to come to some conclusions and then you, you can be more specific when you do your film and make a better film. That's, that's what I think. Okay, hope you enjoyed that. Um, At Night I Fly is watchable on Distrify if you go to the At Night I Fly website, which is just at nightifly.com. Um, you can uh, rent the film on there. Uh, it's definitely worth checking out. Okay, um, that was episode 9 um, of our podcast. Next week will be uh, episode 10. Um, so look forward to that and hopefully we'll see you there um, get subscribing on SoundCloud and iTunes and all that sort of thing to um, keep up to date thanks very much for listening, see you later